to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we are in our fourth study from the book of Jonah. And our series is called Jonah, God is Gracious and Merciful. As we mentioned several times, when we think of Jonah, we think of the unusual aspects of the story. A man who tries to run from God. God sends a storm and a great fish to swallow him. He's in the fish for three days and three nights, and he's puked out on the shore. <laughs> and he goes and preaches to these people, and they repent. And But... When you look at it, there is so much about God's character and his attribute of grace and his attribute of mercy all through the book, all through the book. And so we've been trying to point that out as we go along. So a quick review, if we jump all the way back, we're going to be looking at chapter 4. Um, but um, as we start out in chapter 1, the book starts out in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So God told this prophet Jonah, he had already been a prophet. This wasn't his call. He had already been prophesying. We read about him, I think it's in Second Kings. Okay, And he says, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is one of the major cities of the empire of Assyria. He says, they are so evil. I've heard word of it. Not that God doesn't know what's going on, but just it's come to his attention. Something needs to be done. And he says, go and preach. And Jonah says, I don't want to. So Nineveh's 500 something miles to the northeast. And so he gets on a boat to try to go 2000 miles to the west. Believes he can run from God or at least try to. He goes to sleep. God creates, causes this humongous storm. It won't abate. The sailors are calling out to their gods. They wake Jonah, call out to your God. They have a discussion. Jonah says, I think it's my fault. Why? They discuss it all. They say, what do we need to do? Jonah says, throw me in the sea. They have more compassion than Jonah does. They don't want to throw him in the sea. So they keep trying to evade the storm, and they can't. So finally, they say, God, forgive us. This is the only thing we can do. And they throw Jonah in there. And God caused a great fish. We don't know that it was a whale. There could have been. But a great fish to swallow Jonah up as he sinks to the bottom of the sea. Jonah thought for sure he was dead, as we can tell from his prayer in chapter 2. But God put him in that fish. He was in there for three days, and he does throw him up on the shore. And that brings us to where we were last week at the beginning of chapter 3. As he's on the shore, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. That You didn't get it the first time. Here it is again. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so he did. So he goes to Nineveh, he spends three days preaching throughout the city, telling them, and in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. The people repent, the king repents, the king says, all of us need to repent, all of us need to fast, even the animals need to fast, we need to put on sackcloth and ashes, the, the most rough kind of cloth you could you could put on, it was, it was a symbolic of mourning and all that kind of stuff. And then we get to the end of chapter 2, where we finished last week, Verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, here's the thing. That'd be a great place to quit the story, right? I mean, 
God wants to reach out to these people. God had a message to bring them to repentance. Jonah tries to run away. Jonah finally got it right because of what God took him through. We're going to talk more about that tonight. He obeys God. The mission is successfully accomplished. Jonah preaches, Nineveh repents, and God doesn't send the judgment. But the book doesn't stop there. There's a whole other chapter we're going to look at tonight. Why doesn't the story end there? What God wanted to have done was accomplished. Any thoughts on why the story does not end there? Jonah's still got a problem. Because the story is not just about Nineveh and the Ninevites. It's about Jonah. We talk about how this this story, this book is all about God's grace and mercy. And it's extended to Nineveh and they respond. But it's also extended to Jonah. God's not done with Jonah. You see, Jonah had obeyed, but his heart was still not right. His heart was still not right. Okay, so on your note sheet, I have this under the introduction. The principle here is obedience is better than disobedience, but God is also concerned with our attitude and our motivation. Why we are doing what we're doing, not just that we're doing the right thing. That's very important. We sang about that in our hymns. Obeying God is so important. Okay, but our attitude while we obey him and why we're obeying him. Not just because we feel like we're being forced to or there's no other option. All right, that's important to God too. So this story in Jonah is just as much about God's love, mercy, and grace toward Jonah and God's desire to get him where he needed to be as it was about God's love, mercy, and grace for Nineveh and his desire to get the people of Nineveh where they needed to be. Okay, so the people of Nineveh are where they need to be, but Jonah isn't. So that's why we have another chapter. Okay? You see, God loves the world. God loves every nation. God loves every group, ethnicity, whatever of people. But God also loves every individual, including Jonah. So the title of the message tonight or the Bible study is God and his messenger. And we're just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses. And then we're going to jump into these truths that we're going to draw from it. So Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Okay, again, backing up to verse 10, it says that because God saw the repentance of the Ninevites, he decided, I'm not going to destroy them. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Ironic. Jonah preaches a message that has the most powerful effect it could possibly have, and Jonah's upset. Okay. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Again, it's ironic. Jonah called out for God's mercy and grace and got it. Jonah wanted God to be gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast life, and to relent from the disaster he was in. But he didn't want it for the Ninevites. Going on. Verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth, basically a shelter, for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. And made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade 
over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah made kind of this little uh, shelter and it could be that he made it out of branches and stuff and because of the heat and stuff, it all withered up. And so God caused a plant to grow up with big leaves to give him extra, extra shade. All right. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. This part of the world, the temperatures at this time would get up to about 110 degrees. And Jonah's sitting out in the sun. Okay, And he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in one night and perished in one night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The last statement there, the 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, some have said that that's talking about 120,000 children, which is possible, but that's also kind of an idiom of 120,000 people that just don't even know what they're doing. They don't know about spiritual things. They don't know about me. They don't know about my standards of right and wrong, and that's what I'm trying to correct here. But the the last couple words is kind of humorous. He says, even if you don't care about the people, don't you care about the cows? You know, all right. And that's a very unusual way to end the story. All right. And we'll talk more about why it ended the way it did and what it did to Jonah next week. But tonight we're talking about God and his messengers. So first I want to talk about the God who sent the messenger. All right. Uh, Again, the theme, sub-theme of our, or the subtitle of our study is the God of mercy and grace. But on your note sheet, the first thing I have down here is that God hates sin. God hates sin. We say that all through Scripture. God sends judgment upon sin. God gives warning of judgment upon sin. This book has that aspect in it, right? That's the message Jonah is to take to the Ninevites. You're going to be judged. Nineveh is going to be overturned. Turned around is another way that can be translated um, as we talked about last week. And they were turned around, thankfully, through repentance, not because God had to send his judgment. But he sends that, and we see God's warnings, we see his threats, we see examples all the way through the Bible. Why does God hate sin? You might say, of course he hates sin. But you know what? We try to be good and righteous and love God, but we don't always hate sin, do we? If we did, we wouldn't struggle with it so much. I mean, God calls us to hate it, and we're working on that, but why does God hate sin? Anybody? Yes, Nina. All right. So it's what separates us from God. It's rebellion from God. All right. Lynn. Okay. Sin is disobedience. It's being disobedient to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's God. We're not. We disobey him. I mean, it's just like, you know, do we like it when our kids disobey us? Our grandkids? No. Had some testimony about that tonight, didn't we? <laughs> Chris. Okay, because God knows what sin's consequences are. Physical death, spiritual death. All these are great answers. On my note sheet, I have here uh, just two of these, which kind of summarize the others kind of fit underneath it. The first bullet point there is God is a holy 
and righteous God. All right? Holy and righteous God. The idea of being righteous, we understand it means to be right, to do what's right, to want what is right and good and all that kind of stuff. But what does the word holy mean? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Pure is a word that really is associated with holy, and that certainly has that connotation. Any other thoughts about what the word holy means? To be sinless. Okay, so in relationship to sin is without sin. The word for holy literally means to be separate, which means that God is separate from all that is wrong, all that is unholy, all that is sin, okay, all that is impure, to go to Jose's definition. And God is not just a little bit that way or even a lot of bit that way, but he is totally that way, okay? And so sin is basically just the opposite of everything that God is. He is holy. He is righteous. The Bible tells us that sin cannot even exist in his presence, all right? That's why it's such a big problem that we're sinners and why we need a Savior, all right? But God is a holy and righteous God. You know, even those of us, however good we try to be and all that kind of stuff with God's help, um, or bad we are sometimes, you know, we hate. We hate lies. We hate injustice. We hate unfairness and cruelly, especially when we're on the receiving end, right? I mean, how much more, you know, we're sinful and we feel that. How much more would God hate sin and impurity, you know, with him being totally sinless and he is holy, all right? So God hates sin because he is holy and sin is everything that is anti-God, all right? The second thing I have on there, the second bullet point why God hates sin is because God is a loving heavenly father. Now, we would all say, yeah, I agree with that. God is a loving heavenly father. Thank God he's a loving heavenly father. But what does God being a loving heavenly father have to do with his hatred of sin? I mean, he does both, but aren't they kind of like two separate things? How is God's hatred of sin connected to and related to the fact that he's a loving Heavenly Father? Can anybody see a connection here? Linda. Okay, so on the good side for us is that when we when we sin, because we all have sin, we're born in sin, you know, and we're sinners. And uh, But when we repent as a loving Father, he does forgive sin. That shows the aspect of sin in relationship to God being a loving father as far as the forgiveness, but how does this hatred of sin relate to him being a loving heavenly father? Chris? Okay. God hates sin, and because of that, he's a loving father. He needs to discipline us. That's another great connection. Joe? Yeah, that's a good thing, too, that ultimately there is nothing we could do about sin and paying for sin and whatever, and God took care of that. Again, another sign of his loving being a loving father. These are all great connections, and they are all right. Oh, I got two more. Okay, Veronica, go ahead. Yeah, God doesn't want any of us to perish, and so he allows us to repent of sin. He forgives us. Loving Heavenly Father. We're going to take Lynn's comment, then go on. Go ahead, Lynn. Got something to add to that? Mm-hmm. Yes. That was the main point I was looking for, but every other point that was mentioned is 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 appropriate and fits this. But that's the main thing. As a loving Father, he hates sin because of its consequences on his children. Okay? I mean, just think of this yourself. Um, think of your children. Think of your grandchildren. You know, how would you feel about your child or your grandchild kind of starting to play around with drugs and alcohol abuse and 
and other things that the enemy wants to use to destroy their life. You would hate that, wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd hate that drugs had made an incursion into your home, into your family, that that abuse, that, that whatever it might be. You would hate that, right? But not just that, but the people that draw them into that. Okay? Why do we feel such a righteous, hopefully righteous indignation for those who would traffic in human trafficking? You know, who would enslave people and even going back into our history and things we've talked about before with our different cultures and stuff, looking back in the past, the way people have been treated through the years. Why is there such a hatred for that? Because of the pain, because of the damage, and that's the way God feels about his people. I put Luke 17, verses 1 and 2 on there. Let me read that to you. Um, Jesus is saying to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That's not just about children. That's about God's children. He says, you know, it's bad when there's temptations to sin and you're te- tempted to give into it. But people who deliberately go out there and cause pain and distress and deliberately try to draw people away from God, the judgment is terrible. Now, the thing that's a little bit different about God is he loves those people too, and he wants them to be delivered too. But if they choose not to respond, they will be judged. In fact, every single one of us, I don't care how good we've been all through our life, we still deserve God's judgment. But the good news is Jesus took care of it for us, so we trust in him. And so the judgment is poured out on him. But God as a loving Heavenly Father hates sin because it hurts his kids so bad. You know, God's not up in heaven waiting to zap you because you did this, that, or the other. He's up there saying, no, I'm going to discipline you because you're destroying yourself when you give yourself over to sin. Dorothy. That's right. That's right. Even on a national level, it says that sin is a reproach to any people. All right. Okay, good. Now, before we move on, just real quick, we got two different attributes of God. We got his holiness and righteousness on one side, and we got his great love. Which of these two attributes is most important about God? Love? How many would vote for love as being more important, most important? How many would vote for holiness, righteousness? A couple people. How many say it really needs to be balanced? I've got some people changing their minds now. The reason I even bring this up, I read a really good article the other day. And it was about how in our culture and even in our church culture today, there's so much emphasis on God's love. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but so much emphasis on God's love over and above other attributes. And there are even people, theologians, pastors, scholars that say, you know, God's love is the most important thing and it overrides and shapes everything else. And that is true, but they take it so far that they kind of minimize sin and its impact and that, yeah, it's not so, but you know, God's love covers all, so it's not really that as big of a deal, that kind of thing. Um, and it's got to be in balance. You see, just because God is is love, not just that God loves, but God is love, the Bible says, it doesn't mean that we can excuse our sin. And this article went on to say that it's really interesting that they need to be kept in balance. But when you have people in God's presence, what are they saying? 
loving, loving, loving is God the Father. No, it's holy, holy, holy is God Almighty. So if we have to lean more toward one than the other, I would kind of lean toward the holy side, but that's not to minimize his love. I think they're, they're in balance, and we need to keep them in a balance. There's always got to be that balance between we need to live right, do right, preach right, the right way, but also know that God loves us. See, so anyway, it was a really good, really good article. You might be saying, "Well, where can you get the article?" If you want to know, just send me an email, send me a text, and I'll look it up and send you a link. Okay, so God hates sin. Uh, number two, God loves sinners. God loves sinners. You've probably heard this before. God hates the sin, but loves the sinners. And this is so important because there are some Christians that get it wrong. They know God hates sin, but they also act like God hates sinners. God doesn't hate sinners. He will judge sin, and if the sinners don't deal with their sin by turning to Christ, they're going to have to be dealt with too because the sin is still there. But it isn't because God hates them. In fact, it breaks God's heart more than anybody's probably that they would be judged for their sin. And as we said before, this is one of the main reasons God hates sin so much. We go back to Jonah in chapter 4, which is where we're at. And in verse 2, um, Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh, because I knew you are going to forgive him. And he gives this description of God. He says, um, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Uh, it's interesting. You can read this later, but the note sheet, your note sheet says Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And this is where God gives a special revelation of himself to Moses. And it's almost the exact same description. God says, this is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. You know, last week we were talking about God of the second chance. It was a second chance for Jonah. It was the second chance for Nineveh. Of course, Jonah's now getting a third chance. <laughs> All right. But I put this on your note sheet there. God's heart breaks for those bound by sin. God's heart breaks for those bound by sin. You know, that would cause some people to say, well, why doesn't he do something about it? He did. I mean, Jesus coming. Dying on the cross, what else could, what more could God do? You know, what more could he do? And then people raise a a related question, how can a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't send them to hell. He's done everything that is necessary to keep people from going. I heard an evangelist one time when I was a teenager says, and it was kind of, he was kind of came out of the hippie scene. And he says, yeah, people talk to me. He says, I tell them, you know, if you go to hell, you're paddling your own canoe, baby. But <laughs> in other words, you're going to go there it's because that's where you're headed and you choose to go there. All right. So anyway, um, I, I like this statement. God has done and is doing everything he can to keep people from going to hell. What are you doing about it? You know, not just talking about the sinner, but talking about us as his followers. And, and we'll come back to that when we get to the end of our study tonight. The third part here, when we talk about um, the God who sent the messenger, is that God deals with his messenger. God deals with the messenger. It's quite obvious from just reading the chapter, it doesn't take a lot of great understanding to pick this up, but Jonah's having a pity party. Okay? And God's dealing with him. God, but God didn't give up on him. I'd have given up on him a long time ago. In my flesh. But God didn't give up on him. He gives him a third chance. He's trying to teach him a lesson. And God is actively involved all through the story. So um, maybe you've been here every night. We've studied this. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you know Jonah's story. But for those of you that do know, where do we see in this story God actively involved in the circumstances of Jonah's life in this story? 
What specific things do we see in this story in Jonah chapters 1 through 4 where God is specifically involved in the aspects of the circumstances of Jonah's life? Tim, give me one. Okay, he rescued him when he called out. I mean, it was deliberate. It says that God rescued him. Okay, well, how else was he involved? Barbara. God, that God, God went after him. He didn't let him escape. Yeah. You can't escape from God, but God made it clear he couldn't. Yeah. You're right. Okay. What are some other details where it says that God was actively involved? Lynn. He protected him. Yeah. You know, he told Jonah to do it. He didn't. He gave him a second chance. And so he protected him when he went to the sea. What else did God do in this story? You guys are missing a bunch of them where it says that God specifically did something. Bob. He prepared what? Nineveh? He prepared Nineveh? Yeah, there's no way Nineveh would have repented without God doing something. It wasn't just Jonah's preaching. Sharon, did you say something? That's right. It's obvious from... Oh, sorry, I thought you were through. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's obvious those specific words aren't in there, but everything that God does, it shows him that God loves him, not just the Ninevites. God is willing to give him a second chance, now a third chance, and that God wants him to experience his grace and mercy just like he did the Ninevites. Um, well, let me just give you some specific things that it even states that God was involved, okay? And I have these on your note sheet. In chapter 1, verse 4, it says that God hurled a great wind upon the sea. So as God caused the storm, it wasn't just any old storm. God caused it specifically for this story. Not so we'd have the story, but to accomplish what he's accomplishing, okay? Chapter 1, verse 17, it says, The Lord appointed the great fish. So the Lord actively involved to get the fish to be there to swallow him. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 10, it says that God spoke to the fish with the end result that he would deliver. That's a little bit nicer than saying puke. Deliver Jonah to the shore. So God actively caused the fish to put him where he needed to be. Chapter 4, verse 6, it says that God appointed the vine. That vine didn't just happen, vine didn't just happen to grow at that time in that place. God caused it to happen. Verse 7, it says God appointed a worm. Notice that God uses big things like these great fish and a little tiny thing like a little tiny worm. Okay, God uses the big and the small. So God appointed the worm. It didn't just happen to be a worm there. God caused there to be a worm there to eat that plant. And then in verse 8, it says God appointed a scorching east wind. He made sure that the east wind was extra hot coming on nice and strong at that particular time. So you see God actively doing things in Jonah's circumstance. Now, from Jonah's perspective, without revelation from God, could he know that God was actually doing those things? A couple of them, maybe. The fact that the fish swallowed him and let him go after three days and he's okay, only God could do that. But some of these other things, like, well, that's just natural things. But the point here is that even in the natural things, God is actively involved. Now, something else I want to point out here I just already pointed out God's using big things and small things. But are these good things or bad things from Jonah's perspective? Think about that. Okay, the great wind that caused the storm, is that a bad thing or a good thing as far as Jonah's concerned? Bad. The fish swallowing him, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Both, right? At first, it's probably a bad thing. Oh, great, I think I'm going to drown. Now I'm going to be chewed up by this fish. But then when he finds out that's his method of deliverance, it becomes a good thing. A bad thing that turns into a good thing, pretty obvious. That God spoke to the fish and the fish delivered him to the shore. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Good. Okay. The vine that provided shade. Bad thing or good thing? Good thing. The worm that chewed it and caused it to wither. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Bad. The scorching east wind. Is that a good thing or a bad thing from Jonah's perspective? 
bad. They are more bad than good. The point I'm trying to make, and we could have a great discussion about this, we've got to wrap this thing up. We're having such a good time. Anyway, this can tell us some stuff about the way God works in our lives. The things that God uses to get our attention, to mold and shape us, to help us to grow and mature, to get going in the right direction, to speed us along, they can be good things from our perspective, but they can be negative things from our perspective. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. When we see this whole story of Jonah, we see that, oh man, that must have been really tough for Jonah, but the end result. And we've got to have the same faith that God's doing that in our lives. When the bad things come, that's why we are clean to to, to verses like Romans 8.28, where God can work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And James and Peter, who says, when the trials and tribulations come, count it joy. God's going to use them to purify your faith. Tim, you had your hand up. Yeah, last week you talked about how God will forgive us of our sins, but there are consequences. But even those consequences, God brings those consequences not just to punish us, but to get us back up, it's, it's to have a good result. On your note sheet, I have it this way. Good circumstances are bad. God always has your best interests in mind. Even when you can't see it. Okay? Now, I had another question. We don't have time to ask you to answer it. I had, what determines the kind of circumstances God sends our way? Well, let me just say this. If we cooperate and we walk in obedience and we're willing to learn... That might make the circumstances coming our way be a little bit more positive because when we're stubborn and disobedient and rebellious, God has to use different types of circumstances to get us to go. Okay. All right. So let's take a look now at the messenger sent by God. Say, how are we going to get this done? We'll get this done in a couple minutes. Let me give it to you here. The messenger sent by God. Almost the opposite. Number one, Jonah hated the sinner. Jonah hated the Ninevites. He wanted them destroyed. And we've already talked about that. They were the enemy of his people. They were a wicked people. They tortured people. They tried to develop worse ways of being wicked and evil and hurt people. And they had already caused problems for his people. And he can see on the horizon that if they are not stopped, they're going to cause problems for his people. And they actually ended up doing 150 years later. Uh, I mean, 100, I think it's 100 years later, they conquered his people. Then 150 years later, God sent his judgment on them. But anyway, so he goes out, he's watching, he's waiting. We don't know exactly for what. It seems to indicate, well, maybe God will change his mind. He's still hoping for destruction. He's angry at God for forgiving and not destroying. On your note sheet, I have this. God was willing to receive, I mean, sorry, Jonah was willing to receive God's grace, but not to give it. And we look at Jonah, how could he be that way? Are we ever that way? We're always willing to receive God's grace, but how many times are we not willing to give God's grace to other people? But you don't know what they did to me. Same excuse Jonah's using. These are terrible people. Makes me think of the parable that Jesus told of the unmerciful servant. The story of the prodigal son and his elder brother who did not want to forgive. Okay? So we can be like that too. Second thing is Jonah was selfish. Jonah was selfish. He was self-centered. He was self-focused. This prayer in verses 1 to 3, it's all full of I and me and I. And he's so upset about this death of this short-lived plant, but not concerned at all about the possible death of over 120,000 people. This description of God's character, Jonah's just the opposite. God is gracious. Jonah is not gracious. God is merciful. Jonah is not merciful. God's slow to anger. Jonah's quick to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love, and Jonah is abounding in hatred. God relents from disaster, and Jonah desires to see disaster. Okay. Now, unless it sounds too negative, we'll talk about it next week, but I think this totally changed Jonah's life. 
Doesn't say so in the text, but I'll give you my reason why that's so next week. But to wrap this up, application for today, number one, Jesus is God's greatest messenger. We're talking about God and his messengers. Jesus is God's greatest messenger. He came to seek and save the lost. He gave his life to make it happen. His life was the perfect example in all the people he touched. Same character as God's because he is God. He's always described as being filled with and motivated by compassion. Even on the cross, he asks God to forgive those who crucified him. But he did hate sin. Remember, he told him, go and sin no more. He had that balance of God's love, the mercy, the grace, but yet the sin. Okay, He taught that if you don't change, you're going to end up worse than you were. So there was the emphasis on sin and the need for repentance. And then the second thing there, we are called to be God's messengers. What kind of messenger am I? We are called to be God's messengers. What kind of messenger am I? You know, we can look down at Jonah, but we can be just as bad as he was. We could have a discussion, but it's time to go. So how is that? We run from God sometimes. We talked about the first lesson. We often have too little compassion, except for maybe our loved ones. You know, we may not hate the lost, but if we're apathetic to where we don't interact with them, the result's the same, isn't it? If our apathy and and um, complacency keeps us from reaching out to others, it's going to accomplish the same thing. You know, the Bible makes it clear we've been commissioned and empowered, yet many people make very little effort to reach out to people around them. Okay? The last thing I have on your note sheet is this. Jonah had the wrong attitude, but at least he obeyed God. Jonah had the wrong attitude, but at least he obeyed God. And we have to ask ourselves, are we like Jonah in that we are often more concerned about ourselves, our comfort, conveniences, our reputation, than we are about the condition of the lost? How do we know? What do you get more upset about? Something that disrupts your comfortable life or the fact that people all around you are dying and going to hell? Something to think about. So who are we more like, Jesus or Jonah? Last paragraph, and we're going to pray. May we all become more concerned about others than we are about ourselves. May our concern impact our prayer for the lost, our giving to missions and outreach projects, our involvement in ministry and reaching people. May we tell and hear more testimonies of how God used us to touch someone else. So let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us to get through this lesson. Thank you for the great discussion we've had. And Lord, it is easy to look down on Jonah. But Lord, if we're going to be honest, we may see some of those same tendencies in our own lives. Lord God, caring about ourselves, our comfort, our convenience, and that kind of stuff. And and, and maybe not wanting to show the same mercy and grace to other people. But God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you, Lord God, that we can be right with you through what Jesus did. We pray that you'd help us to be more like Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to be good messengers, Lord God, that we would offer your grace and mercy and love to those around us. Help them to understand they need a Savior because sin is serious and judgment is coming. And help us to do it the right way. Father, we thank you and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www. 
marionoaksag.org.